Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors podcast. I'm Dr. Stephen Bradley, your host. We are welcoming back a guest, one of our uh, biggest episodes of, you know, the two and a half years we've been on air, uh, Michael Johnson of Michael Johnson Legal. He is a physician and contract lawyer. We had him on the show, I think back in August, I was going through emails and he just gave a fantastic, we just talked about the job hunt and the job search and, and he gave such good advice. He's also on Instagram and he's always putting out great tips for people like ourselves that are, you know, finishing residency, looking for jobs. The episode's been downloaded uh, over a thousand times thus far. So one of our uh, more popular episodes and he supported the show financially. We were able to donate some of those proceeds to charity because obviously uh, we're very interested in, in giving back as, as is um, Michael. So, so Michael, thank you so much for coming back on the show and, uh, and sharing your incredible build. Oh, thank you so much. I had so much fun that uh, first time that we chatted and, you know, getting to, to know you a little bit and um, getting to uh, hear a little bit about your journey. Uh, it's so hard transitioning jobs, transitioning from fellowship or residency into your first job. I know during that time, our, our focus was on on transitions, and it was really cool to explore uh, how big of an impact that has on your life. So I'm, I'm glad <laughs> that we're back to talk a little bit more about it. Tell me what's going on. Yeah, I'll have to put a link in the show notes to that episode because I've been able to like refer that episode to my co-fellows. So since then, obviously, I came back to fellowship. So I've shared with my co-fellows because they're looking for jobs and different people. I'm like, hey, I haven't used Michael's services per se, but he gave some really good advice to help me get started in the process. And since then, it sounds like business, business has been booming. You've been able to help a lot of people. Yeah, it's been so much fun. Uh, I've been able to uh, just really expand the the reach of the firm with uh, residents and fellows from all kinds of specialties across the country. The firm's been growing quite rapidly. Uh, we So I have a new colleague, Esther. She works with me. She's a okay. lawyer. Uh, she's also a spouse of a physician. She's more in like the New York City metro area, so she has more of the Northeast covered and uh, comes at it with just incredible insight and attention to detail. So it's been really fun to uh, add a lawyer to the practice, to have someone to bounce ideas off of, someone very, very smart and passionate like me. So that might have been the most exciting part of the last handful of months uh, was, uh, yeah. was joining with Esther. And when did, you, when did you first open the practice? So first was August of 2019. So we're about three okay. and a half, almost three and a half years ago, I guess. Uh, that was with the birth of my first kid. I started that about a week before. Our <laughs> wife was in residency. A uh, little roll of the dice at that moment in life, right? Uh, start a law firm, have a new baby. So it's it's panned out so far. So first, first couple of years of the practice um, was a little bit smaller. Obviously, COVID hit, so it kind of restricted a little bit of some options, some marketing options, that sort of thing. Uh, and I had a little baby at home that I was uh, taking care of. So, so yeah, so some changes over the last couple year, uh, last year or so, we've expanded quite a bit and had an opportunity to reach so many folks. I've been able to do, I, I, I meant to count before uh, we came on, but I think <laughs> I'm up to about 30 or 40 residency um, 
like zoom in didactics. That's been a blast. So if you have a residency or a fellowship and you do some sort of weekly didactic or whatever, uh, let me zoom in and come talk to you. I'll put together a PowerPoint and, and we'll have, you know, one hour chat. That's been maybe weekly or bi-weekly for me. And I have so much fun wow. with that. That's awesome. I love the fact you, you're still keeping, um, you know, at the forefront, that customer service relationship aspect and expanding the team. So you're not just like getting overwhelmed and, and just taking on all comers. You, you, you said you're pretty busy to point you almost had to turn some people away every now and then. Yeah, we try to avoid that, obviously. But uh, the whole purpose of the Instagram and my blogs and the Zoom and didactics for residencies and fellowship programs, just to try to open source as much information as I possibly can. It's so hard to get uh, this information in residency and fellowship. Uh, and maybe add a little bit of like fun to it. I hope that I'm fun to chat with and I'm not too dry. (laughs) Sometimes it's like, Oh, you want to talk about insurance? Like, no, no one wants to talk about insurance, but hopefully I can make, you know, malpractice insurance somewhat colorful to chat about. So uh, that's been the goal. Yeah. I think when we last spoke, I was, I think I was just getting ready to leave the Navy and go into fellowship and obviously to win your fellowship. So I was going to start looking for jobs in the near future. I love the, was it a frozen cup you're drinking out of? Is that- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a Mardi Gras cup, actually. We got Mardi Gras season coming, ah. uh, obviously from New Orleans. I'm in Milwaukee area now primarily, but we always go back for Mardi Gras for a month. I'm a big Mardi Gras Oh, day. nice. Awesome. Um, but I, I digress. So I was getting ready to start the process. So selfishly, a lot of the questions and stuff that we covered in that previous episode were questions that I had in the process. And I think the takeaway that has helped me the most was when you mentioned having multiple offers and that people so often get bogged down into one situation and now you can't negotiate, you have no leverage. So I took that with a grain of salt. And you know, when I hit the ground applying to attending jobs, I applied broadly and upfront and tried to secure as many interviews, and then the uh, follow-up offer letters around the same time so I could kind of review all of them together. So that's that's probably the the biggest takeaway. I know we're supposed to connect and then stuff just happened so fast with residency and offer letters, but um, I I took that information to heart and it for sure kind of helped me navigate that uh, job hunt process. That's really cool. I I have to keep reminding myself, I, I asked so much of physicians in training. I asked them to go interview at many places, obtain multiple offers. <laughs> and you're a little busy right now. Like that's not easy to do. So it's it's certainly not lost on me how challenging it is to uh, execute like a proper, uh, fully wrapped around job search and to do this right. You know, it takes, sometimes it takes a village. I'm sure it's not easy on our our partners and our spouses and those that care for us during this time. It's such a stressful time uh, during this transition. So I'm sure you had some, some support as well, but uh, I'd love to hear about like some of the challenges just from a timing and scheduling and and all of that. How did you manage that? So the first thing, you know, first I scheduled a couple of kind of local interviews to kind of test the waters that were easy to get to. Now, I'm going to be a critical care anesthesiologist, so my job market was a little limited because I was looking specifically for 
institutions with a mixed practice where I'm like 50% ICU, 50% anesthesia. So that narrowed down a lot of the just straightforward anesthesia jobs or straightforward ICU. It was kind of a, a niche market. But the, you know, after those initial interviews to just kind of practice, I looked at locations. So kind of what cities I talked with the wife about, you know, where could you see ourselves living? We interviewed at some places out West and then some in a lot of them in the Midwest. And then we have a lot of family in Florida. So we interviewed down in, in Florida. So location was kind of the big thing. Like, could I see myself realistically living there? Okay. Well, what um, anesthesia critical care jobs are there? And then the third step was like, who do I know that's in that area? So the the network from my resident or my residency and fellowship is is pretty vast. So I was able to reach out to different contacts. Um, as you're applying for jobs, and and you had so much advice in regards to the timing of interviews, offer letters, and and, and all those things. What I saw for the jobs I applied to was there's initial kind of reach out, get to know you period. I, I cold emailed a couple of places nice. and honestly, those didn't really go anywhere. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. Nothing. They, they were like, I just went to their website and put in an application and like, wouldn't hear anything back for weeks, like two or three weeks. So I started this application process, I think in um, September because in November, October, I had a really busy ICU month. In November, I had a very uh, easy rotation. So I'm, I'm going to line up as many interviews as I can in November. So September was when I started reaching out to a couple programs. I just applied online. I had a kind of mixed, lukewarm response. Um, and then I went back and applied to some of those programs after reaching out to a colleague that I had at that institution. And the response was, you know, 100% different, very accommodating. So that was like, okay. Stephen, you can't do this on your own. Look, use your network. So from that point, you know, I reached out to different colleagues at different programs. Hey, are you guys hiring anesthesia critical care? And and that made a world of difference and was able to secure, you know, interviews very, very, very easily at that point. So after, you know, I sent the first email, I would chat with, you know, the chair or my friend, whoever that worked there. They would usually want to do like a Zoom meeting. So that would happen in the first like three to five days. And then they'd say, okay, sounds good. Let's uh, see when we can get you out here for an interview. Or some places had virtual interview options. So that turnaround time was probably like two to four weeks, sometimes as much as six weeks to schedule that interview, either virtually or in person. So that put me, you know, as I was in September, October-ish, started lining up those interviews for November. November hit and it was like off to the races. I was... I think averaging about two interviews a week. Um, <laughs> fortunately for anesthesia, critical care, a lot of places would, you know, they would fly you out, they get you to hotel room. So it's kind of that life that you always dreamed about, you know, it's far cry from residency interviews. But it was, you know, very similar to the interview process um, that, you know, I'm taking notes and um, I'm meeting a lot of people. Some interviews were um, fairly short and sweet. Some were very long. I think one institution I interviewed with, 22 at 22 interviews over two days oh boy <laughs> yeah like 30 minute interviews and then some places i would go to and you know obviously anesthesia is very busy right and i would have folks that had not read my cv um you know they're just kind of getting pulled out of the out of the operating room they they plop down they're very nice and and you know we would chat so i had to take that you know 
you know, take it on the chin, like, hey, these folks were busy. They didn't have a chance to sit and review my CV. So I would start with my kind of one-liner. Hey, I'm Steven. I'm a... And because my, my CV is very confusing. If you look at it, because it's got residency, it's got Navy, Virginia, it's got fellowship. And people will be so confused because I know they glanced at it kind of coming into the room. And then they're trying to like act like they didn't just glance at it. So they're like, oh, yeah, so how's Virginia? How's this? And I'm like, oh, okay, well, here's what happened. I did residency. I went to the military. It was in Virginia. Now I'm back for fellowship. And I'm looking for anesthesia critical care job. So that would like kind of buy us a couple minutes of time. Like, okay, then they just like breathe this sigh of relief. Like, okay, all right, we're on the same page now. So it was a whole kind of spectrum of people that didn't read the CV, people that did, people that had a whole interview itinerary lined out, people that didn't, some facilities that were local and didn't even pay for the parking garage, and some places that would like fly you out, get you a rental car, send a driver for the interview, you know, give you this this full experience and usually include the spouse. So that was all of October that I had the, or sorry, November that I had the bulk of my interviews in the middle of that was, you know, Thanksgiving holiday. And I was kind of squeezing into those first two weeks of December. So that's when I started to get offer letters back after interviewing what I found the range on receiving an offer letter went from as, as low as, you know, two weeks where there's like, Oh, Hey, are you, are you interested? Let us know. Hey, I'm interested. We'd love to see an offer letter. And they'll send you off an offer letter within like two weeks. Um, some places took four to six weeks, right? So that the range of the offer letters came from like the last week of November up until about the third week of December. Wow. And like we talked about, you know, they oftentimes have a two or three week turnaround. So as I was waiting on certain offers to come in, I would have to go back to different programs and be like, hey, can I get an extension for a week? And and usually they were pretty reasonable. And a lot of them, they were, they were transparent. Hey, we're, we're, you know, interviewing people. So just let us know because we want to be fair to people that we're interviewing um, but I was able to kind of work it out to where I had the main places I was looking at together about that that third week of December or so. Nice. So I was able to look at all of the offer letters objectively. And I could tell, and Michael, because you, you talked about this as well, the big facilities that just had a blanket kind of offer letter and there's not much thought, not much negotiation, not much wiggle room. And, and through... The episode that we talked about, because I, I know I, I talked to you, I think, once or twice in the middle of the process, but then it just became so overwhelming because I had about four different letters in front of me, all of which were like not that negotiable. And then it was pinned on uh, our, our, um, the overarching, where do we want to end up living? Right. So that's where I found myself kind of that third week of December, scratching my head. And ultimately, in talking with my attendings and advisors and looking at the different options. Number one, you know, happy wife, happy life. (laughs) Um, Number two, you know, being near family is actually pretty big. So I I do have uh, my wife's family. My family's in Florida. I agree. And then the type of job, you know, is it, am I getting that amount of ICU time that I want? Could I actually see myself living in this city? What is the program dynamics? All those kind of came into play probably in the you know, third or fourth place and really helped guide that decision. So the, the big mistake I made, you'll be so uh, ashamed of me, Michael. I, I apologize. I was down to the wire with these groups. And then eventually, you know, I was like, this is it. Talk with the wife. We're going to do um, this institution. And I signed the offer letter 
or what I thought was the offer letter. And it wasn't until about a week, two weeks later that I realized that that was the contract. (laughs) (sighs) Occasionally it happens that way for, um, for academic institutions, just occasionally, like it'll look like a very basic, you know, here's a couple pages or here's a few pages or, you know, it looks like there's something else coming. Uh, and it can be challenging yeah. to identify, is this the end of the process? So, yeah. I think that the next couple emails were like, all right, you know, the onboarding, we'll start a couple months. Thanks so much. For, I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. And then I went back and looked at it. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so that was the one I was like, wow, I just, you know, I, I gave up the the goods that easy. I didn't negotiate. Now, when it comes to negotiation, it was such a blanket kind of letter policy. The institution is very transparent. They use kind of a step system for salary. Gotcha. So assistant, associate, and professor are the three levels. And there's like a couple of steps within that. And that's your salary at that step. And then every year there's a bonus. So I thought, you know, well, that's that's pretty fair because some of the other academic centers I interviewed at would have very different kind of salary break breakdowns where I would be kind of quoted where I would know what the general salary was. And then there'd be different carve outs or depending on how much they wanted you, they could offer you a lot more. I'm like, well, that's not super transparent. And that would work out pretty well for me, but I don't know if I appreciate that lack of transparency in that negotiations process. So that was something that kind of stuck out to me. That's one of the challenges that I face. I I appreciate employers that have, at least on on, on the surface, it appears to be a transparent compensation plan and and that sort of thing. But sometimes it does tie my hands with respect to compensation. It doesn't always tie my hands with Mm -hmm. other issues, but with respect to compensation, sometimes uh, it does. And it's, it's interesting, uh, Stephen, when you're, when you're looking at different employers, what stands out to you, what, what becomes valuable and what doesn't become valuable. I'm sure that that's something that you concluded after having probably more conversations, more interviews, more like <laughs> looking at more of these than you probably thought. I would argue that you negotiated quite well because you looked at quite a few options and you made an informed choice based on experience. So I think that's really great. Yeah, the, the one area, hopefully you're, you're proud of me. So I couldn't per se negotiate on salary, which again, it was it was super fair. Actually, you know, talking with, I was able to talk with some of the current employees and they were kind of like, yeah, it's what they say it is. It's very fair. I've been working here. I love it. They had a, a very kind of... Um, uh, established practice. A lot of the physicians have been there for 10, 15 years. I'm like, that's a very good sign. Nice. Uh, but I was able to negotiate because I was coming in with, you know, being a professor, an assistant professor at the Uniformed Services University of Health Science. I had an academic appointment during a portion of the time I was in the military. Right. So I was able to leverage some of that academic time into academic time at this institution. So in that way, I was able to kind of negotiate for a higher step and then, you know, some time towards promotion. So I figured that was, you know, part of a long play being somewhere that is near family, has good growth opportunities, and I get to recoup some of that academic time that I've I've uh, worked so hard for. 
Yeah, I would call that negotiating, Stephen. I, I think you did a great job. <laughs> if uh, you know, if you talked about what's special about you, what separates uh, you from just an incredibly talented, driven group of folks that you're around, right? Uh, and you're able to advocate for something that's important to you. I think that's negotiated. I think that's great. Good work. Yeah, and I know you helped out a couple couple of different people that that I know was able to refer uh, to your practice, and and um, they they said you were very helpful, even with some of the big box contracts and big academic centers, as you're able to kind of point them towards some of the specific things that they should look for and look into negotiating, um, and then even more so talking with my uh, former co-residents that are in private practice. Cause that brings a whole nother level of what you can and can't negotiate for and you know, how you can get kind of screwed over sometimes on those contracts. No, oh, definitely. Definitely. The, the thing I, I preach Steven is first, uh, we must understand, got to understand what the deal is. What is the, what are the pros and cons that can be really challenging to obtain? Sometimes it's challenging for me. I read a couple hundred or a few hundred of these contracts every year and I don't always understand what the contract means and what, what, what they're saying. So there's so many times where I need clarity. So a physician that reads maybe uh, a few offer letters and maybe one or two contracts during one interview process, it's really unfair. Like the contracts are not really written in a way to be interpreted by you. Like you're just not really trained to do it. So that can be one of the biggest challenges, but even in a contract that may not be super negotiable, there's tons of times where I have to say to a client like, Hey, look, I'm not super confident that we're going to get any changes, but you need to have clarity about the pros and cons of the job. And if we get that and we ask yeah. for clarifying questions and you're, you're able to clearly identify potential issues in advance that I think you've negotiated, like you've done something important. You've improved your chance of success uh, with the job. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the one thing that was surprising, Michael, was especially with some of the bigger like academic centers. It's happened, I think, twice where I got like a photocopy upon photocopied um, kind of offer letter that is that was so dated that it's like, okay, this is purely a formality and everything else gets kind of talked about and you kind of carve out other stuff that's not necessarily on paper, which talking to employees at those institutions, like it worked out and it was fine. And it's almost like this organization is so big and cumbersome that here's the document from six years ago. Everybody gets this. And then you talk with the chair about what you actually want. And then they'll like, I think kind of amend the offer letter or they'll put it kind of somewhere else, but that institutional contract doesn't change. And I was like, wow, that that's, that's interesting. Yeah. It's a challenge. Some of the, the typical pushbacks I get, particularly from larger institutions and also academic centers is that they don't want the contract to be an operational document to really dictate the ins and yeah. outs of like your day, like your template, your number of calls, your, you know, whatever it is. 
And then my response is like, okay, can we make the non-compete and the non-solicit also kind of up in the air? Like, make the let's make those optional right. too, right? Like, let's make the malpractice tailpiece optional and the termination clause optional. Like, it, it's a challenge. Okay, I I like the idea of physicians clearly asking for what they want, the type of job that they feel like would make them most happy. And look, 99 times out of 99, that's going to be better for the patient too. Like you're doing something that's better for patients and better for the profession and all of that. And when the physician has more control, more autonomy, then it's better for everybody. So even if, even if you do not get like inline changes into your contract that specifically spell out more than they normally want, having that discussion on the front end can be very helpful. Yeah, I think having it in writing too, like emails back and forth, uh, I would prefer for more to be in the contract, obviously, but some email exchanges can be very helpful in clarifying the expectations. Um, also, yeah, the person that you initially had discussions with might not be there forever. So like that initial <laughs> promise between you and the program director, whoever's in charge, that conversation was certainly not shared with the legal team. Certainly not shared with whoever, right. like, you know, rescanned in the offer letter for like the fifth time, right? And then uh, if there's a new director, there's new um, leadership in the division, then that can be really challenging. So um, trying to have something to point to that speaks to what the original deal was um, is, is often what we're striving for. But yeah, it's, it's such yeah. a nuanced process. It's really challenging. And then I think you also experience, particularly in, in Florida, um, some, some areas of the country uh, have as many physicians as they kind of need. It's not on a macro level. We don't have enough physicians to cover all of our healthcare needs. Like guaranteed, you know that coming from like Chicago and looking out through the Midwest and rural Midwest space, like we don't have it. Right. Okay. But in certain areas of country, we do. And then certain areas of country, like I don't have as much leverage to negotiate, to get in line changes into contracts exactly how I want. So it's a little bit of a, of a tug and a, a compromise. Yeah. Well, that, that was my experiences. I signed a contract apparently, and uh, we, we do have a job. I'll, I'll announce probably the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, we're, we're excited and, and, Thank you. Just that conversation again gave me so many tools that I was able to use as I navigated that process. And that's awesome. That's that's really cool. I'm um, I'm curious uh, what um, if you would maybe come back on about the credentialing process and like that onboarding process because oh, yeah. there are some issues there. You got to stay on it. Uh, I don't know how it's working for you, particularly with maybe having more work background than most that are coming out of training, uh, if that process was a little bit more arduous. Uh, and uh, I think that kind of shedding some light on that will help residents and fellows try to push this process up. If you get towards the very end, like in April and May, it gets a little bit tricky to be able to be employed in like August or September. That can be right. a challenge. Yeah, I'll definitely. I'm, I'm in the middle of that or just the very beginning of that process, I'll definitely keep folks updated. But I will say, so question, because it is end of January as we sit and chat, so it's probably air in February. For residents and fellows that are coming out of their programs, 
I, I guess it's not super late because oftentimes I'll take some time off and maybe start in September, October. But what, what's that time frame for, for the job search? Yeah, so it's a little bit different for everybody. If you're finishing this summer, uh, we're, if, if we get into March, April, May, particularly in, in some specialties where you really only have a couple options and you might have to look at different locations and your, your process is a little bit more extended, when you get into late spring, early summer, you might need to plan for some locums opportunities in the short okay. term, just in case if you need a little bit more time to negotiate your contract. What I want to try to avoid are folks that feel like they're really just pressed for time and they have to take something that maybe hasn't been fully vetted. It doesn't have to be fully negotiated. You're not going to win every single negotiation, everything that you want in your contract. I've yet to read a single contract that was perfect. But to fully vet it takes some time. To, to go through that process takes some time. So if you need to look to locums as a cover for a handful of months to avoid making a bad decision or just an uninformed decision, then I think that makes a lot of sense. But okay. I think if you're, if you're going backwards, the credentialing process to be safe, particularly depending on your specialty, some are a little bit longer, some a little shorter, but you need at least probably three or four months from the time that you sign to ensure that you're going to start on that start date. If you're in a, if you're okay. joining a small private practice that's probably swamped and potentially understaffed right now, it's incredibly difficult to staff small healthcare companies. Even the mega healths are struggling to staff their credentialing departments everywhere. So I think that's going to be particularly troublesome this cycle. But especially if you're looking at smaller private practices, I would encourage you to give it at least three or four months. So if you're backing it up. You know, if you're going to end up with kind of an extensive back and forth over the contract of the negotiations, the time between when you receive the contract and when you sign it is going to be three, five, seven weeks, something like that, eight weeks. Okay, now mm. you have to have a contract in hand like five, five months in advance, right? So if gotcha. the interview from the first interview to the last interview and getting the contract in hand is also going to take, I don't know, you tell me how, how long was, was that process between the interview and getting some LOIs? Was that on average, like the first interview to the LOI? What was the average for you? The shortest was three weeks and the longest was six weeks. The average is probably about three to four weeks. Yeah. So if you're going to work on a timeline that really just allows you to do what you want, then like that six to seven month range is when it starts to get a little bit tighter. I would encourage yeah. some folks, you know, we might be a little bit early. I would say some subspecialists, some like surgical subspecialists can certainly start looking now uh, for 2024. If you want to look for the next oh, wow. year now, okay. you can certainly get that going. I see some leverage opportunities to push for more signing bonus. I know I say over and over that signing bonus isn't the most important thing, but like, if you're willing to sign, I don't know, 18 months, 19 months in advance, you say, hey, look, I'm signing way in advance. Can you uh, include an additional training stipend for these 19 months since I'm already committed? There might be some negotiation leverage to start actually a year in advance. So I would check that out if you're interested. 
some employers, uh, really just depends employer by employer. Some of the ones that you're looking for probably weren't ready to meet you, weren't ready to learn about you until you at least had some time in your fellowship. Was there anything like regarding the timing of your fellowship and interviewing jobs that you found important there? It was, um, it was was such a weird market because I imagined coming out of a pandemic, there would be wide open ICUs everywhere. But it seemed like I was just in the awkward spot where a lot of big institutions had just filled all of their critical care spots. So it was that market was based upon the trainee cycle and okay, you'll be available in July ish and we'll start you in September ish would be ideal for our practice. So it was kind of more based on that training cycle as opposed to probably the private groups where they may have some flux, some flux and some movement kind of throughout the the year. Gotcha. Yeah, I think it just differs like employer by employer. I'd be curious if uh, you brought yeah. on a hiring manager, what what they would say, what their answer would be to that question. Um, I'd love to be a part of that conversation yeah. one day if you brought one on because it would be very illuminating. Well, like, hiring manager. I mean, I want to make it super easy for the hiring manager to hire my client. Like, what can I do to make uh, make their their um, application and this whole process easier without prejudicing my client's right to negotiate for a fair contract? I'd be interested what they would have to say. But getting back to your question about the timing, um, I think that for folks finishing the summer, you know, we're kind of at that point now where if you haven't started with interviews, you really need to get started. Or like if you're just busy and you want to wait, you feel pressured, you're not quite in a, in a mind space to, to do that, prepare, explore some locums opportunities, something part-time, something 1099 that you can start uh, that doesn't commit you to like a two or three year term maybe, or some non-compete for a job that you don't really know about yet, you're not quite confident in, uh, there's some part-time stuff that might be a great fit for some coming out of training that are not quite ready to make a bigger commitment. Yeah. Having worked some locums stuff, I would, if I had, I would say, and I'm curious for your answer, three months to be able to kind of tease out a good locums assignment versus a bad, but you could probably get a locums gig in as little as uh, a month and a half to two months if you're just taking whatever is out there. But if you wanted to kind of vet some options, I would say three months. I don't know. What would you say, Michael? I think that's great advice. I think that if you're, let's say you're wanting to be employed or wanting to make sure you're working by September and you uh, you don't have a contract signed yet by maybe May, April or May, then I think looking at some locum, something that you can get in, a, in and then get out of relatively quickly when you find mm-hmm. the job that you want might be a great fit for you. Had a client, an interesting... Um, uh, had multiple fellowships, very highly trained, and then spent a little bit of of time uh, really just thoroughly vetting a handful of options, like really went into detail and went on a couple different trips to each of of, um, her options and used locums just like a week in some place that doesn't have a lot of physicians, like was able to go into... uh, in an underserved area, particularly in our specialty, uh, and do quite well financially during that period. Um, it really freed her yeah. up 
to fully vet, make an informed choice. And I think that she was really made better off by not rushing that process when she wasn't ready and using locums as a bit of a backup. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't think we we're going to go that direction, but I, I mean, absolutely. That is such great advice because, and when I say vet the locums, because you need to talk to people that do locum stuff because the salaries that they offer can vary wildly. You can find yourself signing up with a group, quote unquote, or a mega corporation that now you have a non-compete in the city that you want to practice in. Um, you know, so you're finding that locums gig that pays well, that may be in some somewhere that you're not going to work, right? So you don't mess up that non-compete situation. So there's a lot of nuances. So that's why I would say like that little bit of extra time to actually like figure out the the locums game and there's resources available if you go that direction. Definitely. I've, I've brought, uh, there's some, been some folks that have hired me that have looked exactly at that. They said, look, I have these three locums opportunities. Can we set aside some time? I'll, I'll pay for your time, but let's just work through these. I really need more career guidance than like the nuts and bolts of what each malpractice tail provision provides. Like I can, I can look at that and I can figure that piece out, but can you help me just work through this problem and what makes the most sense for me? And those have been some really fun representations recently. Uh, I like the idea of the, some of the freedoms that some of those jobs provide. But also, all like you said, all locums are not created equal. Some read like employment yeah. contracts. Some are so hard to get out of that it might as well be full-time employment contracts. They're not the part-time, <laughs> like, easy in, easy out that you think that they might be. And that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Black Doctors Podcast. I am Steven, your host. Thanks so much for your support. If you like today's episode, go ahead and follow us on Instagram at Black Doctors Podcast. Give us a comment or a review on Apple or iTunes. It really helps the show grow and reach more people. If you're interested in following up with Michael Johnson, you can find him on Instagram at Physician Contracts. Also check out the show notes. We'll put a link to his website so you can get plugged in. If you are a medical student, you're going into your third or fourth year, you are going to be actually, if you're a medical student in any year, you want to match one day into residency. I highly, highly, highly recommend you sign up for the SNMA annual medical education conference. It's in Connecticut. I believe it's in uh, April. It's either in March or April this year. Don't quote me. You can Google it, but I highly recommend going there every year. There is a whole flock of residency programs. You can go do meet and greets. You can have face-to-face, in-person conversations with folks at potential future residency programs you can join. Totally worth the money. You're going to be surrounded by like-minded people, other physicians, future physicians of color. Highly recommend that special opportunity. Tune in next week to another episode of Black Daughters Podcast. We are here because representation matters. <laughs>